Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, now that Doug Ford has gone back on his Greenbelt promise, his government is facing calls by opposition parties to investigate the deal. Deals raised a lot of serious concerns, and we'll talk about those. The latest uh, GDP numbers are out, showing Canada's economy is actually growing, but it's too soon to actually think there's a trend going on there. And one-third of Canada's mandatory minimum prison sentences have been repealed due to a bill that was passed by the Senate. But is it strong enough? A lot of folks don't think so. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, all eyes have been on the provincial government here in Ontario for the last couple of days because of some of the legislation the Ford government is rushing through that has an impact on the Greenbelt. And the story that we carried yesterday uh, basically raised some serious questions about, first of all, why did they flip-flop on their commitment to never touch the Greenbelt and allow development? That's that's a question worth answering. But who benefited? Uh, apparently an awful lot of people that donated lots of money to the PC party uh, own those properties and uh, probably going to make a ton of money as a result of that decision that's being made. Well, there is some pushback from some of the opposition parties, uh, including the uh, the leader of the Ontario Green Party, Mike Schreiner, who joins us uh, right now to talk about uh, his thoughts on this and, and certainly uh, what's going to be happening going forward. Mike, as always, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us on a busy morning. Well, always a pleasure to be on and a uh, busy morning and a rainy morning. Yeah, right across Ontario. We're gonna and high, and the winds are coming too. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on what's going on there. Uh, the the winds of change seem to be blowing in <laughs> Queens Park these days, uh, and uh, the flip flops, the whatever you want to call it, from the Ford government. Uh, you've uh, taken a proactive step on this. You wrote to the uh, to the integrity commissioner. Yeah, Bill. You know what? It just this just looks shady. What's going on here? The premier and the minister of misplayers and housing have said numerous times inside and outside the house that they will not develop the green belt. They won't touch it in the past. Every time they have said, Hey, we're going to open it for development. People have pushed back and they've backtracked, but now the premier has broken his promise. And of the 15 parcels of land that they're opening for development in the green belt, over half, eight of them have been purchased since Doug Ford was elected in 2018. And one of them was, was the deal just closed two months ago. And so you have to ask the question, if you're you know, a developer, why would you be spending millions of dollars, $80 million in the, in the case of the, the land that was closed a couple months ago on land that is supposed to be protected forever and not available for development? And then suddenly, magically, with a stroke of a pen, uh, Doug Ford's going to make it available for development, and these land speculators are going to be able to turn literally millions into billions. And uh, I don't think it, you know, I think it raises serious questions. And so I, I you know, fi- filed an affidavit and sent a letter to the Integrity Commissioner on Monday uh, requesting an investigation uh, because, uh, uh, you know, my concern is is that the Premier and the and or the Minister uh, has violated Section 2 and 3 of the Members Integrity Act. Uh, and I think it should be investigated. And, and I think the people of Ontario uh, need to know and need to have confidence that their government isn't providing insider information or making decisions that directly further the private interest of a handful of individuals. And, and just so people are clear on this, and I think you've talked about this in the past, uh, you, you don't spend $80 million and, and just say, well, we'll just sit on this and maybe, you know, good fortune will like this change. I, I, I don't mean to be sounding overly cynical, Mike, but it certainly sounds like they knew something we didn't know. 
Yeah, it certainly would be a very expensive lottery ticket. And uh, this particular person seemed to have hit the jackpot. Uh, so it raises serious, serious questions. And we've had numerous uh, media stories now from multiple media outlets. So uh, a wide variety of folks now uh, doing investigations, raising serious concerns that not only are uh, these land speculators uh, going to benefit financially from this decision, but they also happen to be significant uh, donors to the Conservative Party. Uh, so it just raises serious questions. And and I think the Integrity Commissioner is the appropriate person to conduct an investigation uh, to see if the Premier or the Minister of Missile Affairs and Housing contravene the Members Integrity Act. And, you know, we'll wait to see, you know, one, if if the Integrity Commissioner agrees to do the investigation. So I've only sent a request and two, what the results of it were, will be. But I can tell you, you know, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that say this looks like a pretty shady deal. And talk to us about what could happen. I mean, let's let's go down that road. And I know we're kind of, you know, doing the what if thing here. Uh, what if the integrity commissioner says, yeah, there was some, some wrongdoing or something kind of shady here? Uh, th- there's no penalty or anything involved in this, is there? Yeah, so there's there's limited uh, abilities for the integrity commissioner to issue penalties. Um, and, and in the past, th- that's been uh, mentioned as maybe something that needs to change uh, in the act uh, and in the role and, and like responsibilities that the integrity commissioner has. But I think it's important for the public to know. And so this really is, I think, around public transparency, uh, ensuring that we have trust in good governance. And 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 so, you know, in many respects, you know, this will be litigated, if you, I can use that word, in the court of public opinion. And I think it's important for the people of Ontario to know, did something, you know, uh, inappropriate happen here? Uh, because it certainly looks suspicious, and and then the public can uh, serve judgment on that. Uh, um, Merritt Stouse, who's probably going to be the new leader of the Ontario NDP party, since nobody else seems to want the job, uh, suggested the other day that uh, that she'd like to see the Auditor General, who's going to issue her report today, also investigate that. Would you support that idea? Oh yeah, no, I certainly support um, the Auditor General looking into it, and hopefully next year, so a year from now, when the Auditor General um, issues her next report that that'll be included in in the report and and that will likely really show um, you know what was the public cost of these particular deals especially in terms of you know how these individuals likely are going to be able to turn millions into billions and what the implications are for you know the, the cost to the public and the difference with the integrity commissioner is really, you know, was there a conflict of interest? Was insider information uh, conveyed to these individuals that enabled them to know that, you know, they, they could make these land purchases and convert protected land into land that's available for development? So I think both investigations are are important and, and certainly support the Auditor General uh, looking into this as well. Like, how do you keep this story alive? I, I, one of my colleagues was talking to me about this last night and simply said, look, at, I, the strategy here is going to be simple. The Ford government's going to rag the puck. You're going to go to the Christmas break and you don't go back until February or March and people will forget about it by then. 
You know, Bill, there is a lot of anger out there around the premier breaking his promise to open the Greenbelt for development. You know, I think I documented almost 20 times just in the legislature, uh, inside and outside of the legislature, where the premier and the minister said over and over again, unequivocally, we are not going to open the Greenbelt for development. And for the premier to break that promise, uh, people are angry. Like I've been to a number of pop up protests around the province. I've seen numerous petition signatures coming in, seeing signs pop up saying, you know, Doug Ford, keep your Greenbelt promise. So I think folks are going to keep up the pressure on the premier. And I've told people, you know, keep going. Bill 23 has passed, but the regulations around implementing the opening of the Greenbelt for development, the comment period of the, uh, for that is still open to December 4th. And then after the comment period closes, the government will still need to make a decision through the regulatory process. And so we've seen this premier back down in the past, facing significant public pressure. I mean, just a few weeks ago, you know, he backed down on using the notwithstanding clause to take away people's charter rights. So I think there's an opportunity to get the premier to back down on this if people put enough pressure on government. And there are a lot of people out there mobilizing farm groups, citizen groups, environmental groups, um, taxpayer organizations, all mobilizing to say what the premier is doing is wrong. And I know his municipal affairs minister, uh, Mr. Clark, is every time we talk about it, these are talking points, I get that, but it's, you know, well, we need housing. We have to do this for housing. Uh, but it's worth noting here, I guess, Mike, that uh, the province struck their own task force about housing uh, some months ago. They came back with their report and they said, yeah, we need lots and lots of housing, but not in the Greenbelt. They said, we don't need to do that. So he's he's really defying his own his own committee's information here. Yeah, and Bill, let's be clear. The Housing Affordability Task Force was handpicked by the premier. Like these were his people. And, you know, I certainly didn't agree with everything that the task force came out with, but there were a number of recommendations uh, from the task force that was actually in the Ontario Green Party's uh, housing affordability strategy that some have called a masterclass plan in delivering the solutions we need. And so in the absence of the government acting on that, I mean, the government ha has failed to put forward some of the most important uh, solutions uh, recommend recommended by the task force. And in turn, they violated things that the task force said. So the task force explicitly said there is enough land to build the housing we need in Ontario. We do not need to open the Greenbelt for development. The premier is, you know, essentially contradicting that. And then the task force also um, made it clear that doing things like ending exclusionary zoning by allowing fourplexes and four-story walk-up apartments would be a way to quickly build more housing. That's why I've introduced a bill that would do exactly that. I've also introduced a bill that would allow for mid-rise development along major streets and transit corridors, allowing uh, six to 11-story buildings, because I think we have to get past this false narrative that it's tall or sprawl in this false choice that it's housing versus the environment. And let's build affordable homes in the communities people want to live where they don't have to be in these long, expensive commutes because they live so far away from where they work. We can do that. I've put forward legislation that will help facilitate that. And it's in line with recommendations literally from the premier's own housing task force. But, but, is it more difficult to try to, to clarify that and get uh, the message out to the public when, when the government, including the premier, conflate the issues of housing and protecting the green belt? Well, it certainly uh, presents a challenge because, you know, the premier has a much bigger microphone 
than I have as an opposition member. But, you know, I'm continuing to push that message out. Uh, I see a number of housing advocates and housing experts pushing uh, that message out. You know, I've been really clear with people when I go to the pop-up protests against opening the Greenbelt for development that we can't just say no, that we have to say yes to housing. And that's why I've put forward legislation that says yes to building the homes we need in Ontario, but doing it in a way that's one, more affordable uh, because it doesn't uh, engage in, you know, high, high cost, expensive sprawl and does it in a way where people can find affordable homes in the communities they want to live close to their family, close to where they work and close to the shops and local businesses they want to support. Well, it's uh, no coincidence to an awful lot of people that some of these parcels of land that have been opened up in the Greenbelt are very, very close to the new proposed highway that the Ford government wants to build too. So and you, you can't separate those two issues, can you? Yeah, and I will say that, you know, a lot of the pop-up protests and it, it, that I've been rallies and things I've been going to, and literally they're happening in communities all across the province. Uh, oftentimes you'll see, you know, most of the signs you see are, you know, keep your Greenbelt promise, but you also see Stop Highway 413 as well. And then the other thing that we have to recognize is, you know, some of this land, the Dufferin Rouge Agricultural Preserve, for example, near Pickering, uh, some of the tender fruit uh, lands in in Niagara that are being open for development. That is specialty cropland, prime farmland, some of the best farmland in all of North America. And at a time when we're facing significant food inflation due to disruption in global supply chains, we need to be strengthening uh, our local food supply chains. We need to be protecting the farmland that feeds us and contributes so much to our economy. And so for the premier to completely just disregard that is just so irresponsible and reckless. And then the other side of it is, is you know, a lot of this Greenbelt land was also designed to help protect us from flooding and other extreme weather events. And we know the intensity and frequency of those are escalating. So again, it's just reckless for the premier to put our lives, livelihood and property at risk by paving over sensitive environmental areas. Well, uh, as you mentioned about these pop-up uh, protests, there's going to be a number of them this past weekend. We just advise our listeners to, uh, well, check your local listings, I guess, and find out which groups are going to be in your community. Mike, as always, thank you so much for this. Appreciate the time today. Yeah, my, yeah, my pleasure. Anytime, Bill. Take care. Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Green Party and, of course, MPP for Guelph. And uh, with his uh, request to the Integrity Commissioner to uh, see what he can do. And, of course, also, as we mentioned, that uh, the... Uh, NDP are actually asking the uh, Auditor General, uh, Ms. Lissick, to uh, also investigate uh, the Greenbelt uh, legislation and the implications thereof. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about inflation. Interest rates are going to go up again probably next week. Uh, and we're getting a little ticked off by this. I understand that. But we're being told, as we mentioned on the program yesterday, this is all for the common good. This is this is going to help slow down inflation, maybe even reduce inflation. And at the end of the day, we're going to come out and say, boy, that was a, that was a smart move. But we're not saying it yet. Uh, however, uh, it does look as if there are some positive signs here. Uh, Canada's economy actually expanded slightly in September, uh, with the country's gross domestic product growing by 0.7% during that quarter. So what does that mean? Uh, can we actually feel the improvement here? Let's uh, bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation. Marvin, of course, is a professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us again. Glad to be with you, Bill. This, I, I guess on the surface, is a good news story. Talk to us about what's going on and and and, and 
exactly what is this? Is this a trend that we're looking at here or is this a blip? Right. So the, the biggest question everybody asks me when I see them on the street is, are we in a recession? Are we in a recession? And a recession is defined as two consecutive quarters where the economy shrinks. We knew that the first two quarters of 2022, there was no shrinkage. Both quarters, we saw growth. No, not huge numbers of growth, but growth nonetheless. And then, of course, in the second half of the year, we saw more and more tightening by the Bank of Canada raising their interest rates. What's this going to do? What's this going to do? So the data that you're sharing uh, is the September data. And it says that in the third quarter of the year, the year, the quarter that ended on September 30th, again, the Canadian economy grew. Now, you're right. 0.7 percent is not a lot of growth. But given some of the, the nasty predictions we had about these higher uh, interest rates, we're still growing. Uh, at best, I could say that what we've got, or maybe at worst, I could say that what we've got is a slowdown in our economy. But a slowdown is not a recession. Uh, in fact, a slowdown is exactly what the Bank of Canada wanted to help bring uh, inflation down, and we all benefit from that. Now, the question is, all right, if the third quarter there's growth, then we can't be in a recession. But but Marvin, that was looking back in the mirror. This is December, almost December. Where do we stand in this quarter? And again, the numbers are okay, Bill. They're not great, but they're okay. Just take this last weekend. Now, I, I would be the first to admit that Black Friday and Cyber Monday, et cetera, are bigger in the United States than they are here. But in the United States, they set record numbers for spending on both the Friday and the Monday. And we've seen Canadian retailers respond with similar kinds of sales. So I'm gonna tell you that I think the fourth quarter of 2022 is still going to show positive growth. Will there be a recession? Maybe, maybe we'll fall into a recession, but that would be at least midway through 2023. We're not in a recession right now. And again, what I worry about a bit is for some reason, everybody seems to want bad news we could create our own recession if we started to buy into all of this negative talk. Slowdown is different. I like a slowdown. It allows us to start bringing those inflation numbers down. Now, I know we had the inflation data for October. Wasn't good. Inflation hadn't moved at all. But we're going to get the November numbers in about two weeks. And I think, I think certainly when I look at gasoline prices at the moment, inflation will yet again be coming down. And that's exactly what we want. No recession but lower inflation. And and for those that we're talking about, well, the economy is going to slow down. Uh, I, I mean, the numbers we're looking at here, Marvin, oil and gas uh, extraction is up by uh, only 1.8%, but it's up. Uh, that's at the oil sand. So you can you know take that, Premier Smith. Things are going better than we thought they were going to be. Uh, uh, and, and other areas too, manufacturing is up. Agriculture is up. So it seems as if uh, some people aren't getting the idea that we're supposed to be in bad times right now, and they're they're starting to hum along. It's it's as you say, it's not you know incredible gains, but I mean they are positive. Right. Well, again, this was the dance that the Bank of Canada has been trying to do for the better part of this year. Yes, they've been raising interest rates, and if I only focus on that at the start of the year, zero point two five percent. And again, Bill, I'll go out and make a prediction that next Wednesday the Bank of Canada is going to raise the interest rates another quarter of a point. So at the beginning of the year, 0.25%. At the end of the year, 4%. My gosh, we've never seen this big of an increase in interest rates. So if I focused on that, yes, the sky is falling, things are terrible. But they're doing it in the name of trying to bring inflation down from its high of 8%. Now it's at 6.9%. 
I'm hoping, I'm hoping that when we get the November numbers, we might actually be in the low six, maybe even in the high five range. And that is where we want to go as we go into 2023. So a slowing of the economy to get inflation under control, avoiding a recession, that would be the dream scenario earlier this year. We all thought it'd be very, very difficult for the Bank of Canada to make this happen. And they're not out of the woods yet. But my gosh, we've gone a long ways and the dance seems to be working out just perfectly. There's another stat here that I wanted to get your, your perspective on too. Uh, and that's what they call household savings. Uh, it increased by oh, two, 5.7% uh, from 5.1. Uh, before the pandemic, it was only about 2.5%. So it sounds as if uh, we as consumers, Marvin, are, are starting to heed the message from the Bank of Canada. Uh, we're not spending quite as much, notwithstanding what just happened this past weekend, but we're socking money away just in case. Yeah. So again, Bill, this is a fairly normal reaction to things. When, when you begin to hear some news, whether it is that the Canadian dollar is below 75 cents and gosh, I might like to travel, but ooh, it's got more expensive. So I better save some money or look, my kids are getting older university tuition. I'd better save some more. I'd better prepare for my retirement. More and more Canadians are beginning to approach retirement ages. So uh, you're right. During the uh, first bounce back from COVID, uh, earlier this year, people were spending. They were they were all pent up in their houses, and they said, "Oh, I, I got to get a new couch. I got to get a new this." And they did. They didn't save as much, but now that they've gone through that first wave of consumerism, they're saying, "Wait a minute, maybe we'd better pull back a little bit." And a little bit is again absolutely perfect. We don't want people to not buy this Christmas season. We don't want the Christmas trees to be empty. We want you to buy, but we want you to buy responsibly. And that is finding that balance between today's consumption and saving for tomorrow's needs. And again, I think a lot of Canadians have heard the message and are trying to find that same path going forward into 2023. Bill, if I, if I can flip it for you for a second, you know, another headline we could be saying, given this data, is this. Canada's economy is performing the best of the G7 nations. These are the seven largest economies in the world. When, they, when those nations look at us, when they look at their inflation rate compared to us, when they look at their cost of borrowing compared to us, when they look at their economic growth compared to us, they all look at us with envy. They're saying, how is Canada getting this right? And we're struggling. European nations very much struggling. Even the United States is struggling. Canada is doing the best of them. We're not doing great, but we're doing the best of our peer group. And, and for those, you had this discussion with us, I think, some weeks ago now, that figure, okay, we're getting into better times. Uh, you know, it's time to go back to the boss and see if I can get that boost in income. Uh, the, employee compensation only rose 1.2%, which is uh, not outstanding by any stretch of the imagination. So there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow here. People are being rather uh, parsimonious, I guess, with the salary increases. Well, again, Bill, here's here's the concern. So the, the Bank of Canada talks about baking in inflation. And what that means is we don't want people to think that 5% annual inflation is now the new normal. Now, just to make it very personal at McMaster, we have a situation right now where a number of the teaching assistants and research assistants are on strike and they are trying to negotiate a three-year contract. Now, in the first year of the contract, which is going on right at this moment, yeah, inflation's higher. And I think they should be looking for an increase of 3%, 4%, 5%. Find the number you like because inflation this year has been high. But the mistake then comes to assume that year two and year three should also be at that level. If the Bank of Canada makes magic happen, and so far they are, 
then inflation is going to go back down to the 2 to 3% range in 2023. In 2024, it might be in the 1 to 2% range. So uh, yes, by all means, you should get the right compensation given the inflation you've seen this year, but don't get it in your head that this is now the new normal. Everyone is working to take it back to where it was before. And that's why I think employers will be a little bit generous in the short term, but again, we'll keep the purse strings pretty tight when you talk about two to three years down the road. Exactly. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. As always, Marvin, thanks for this. Really appreciate the time. Glad to be with you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This government, the Trudeau government, uh, has been, they tell us anyway, uh, committed to changing all that. Uh, The concern here is they're not changing it as much as they should change it, and they're doing it awfully damn slow, slowly rather. And uh, that's raised the concern of a number of people. Now, the Senate has just passed a bill that uh, that seems to address that. It's uh, called Bill C-5, an amendment to the Criminal Code and the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. But again, uh, it seems to be a half measure in some people's minds. I want to get our next guest to comment on that. Uh, she is uh, Senator Kim Pate from uh, Ontario and joining us here on the program. Senator, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you on the show today. Oh, wonderful to be here. Thank you, Bill. And thank you for covering this important issue. Well, I, I remember, I, as I said, when, when the, these measures were being passed uh, in that time, the Harper government, Justice Minister Rob Nicholson was on the program a number of times defending them. But the, the, the pushback I got, Senator, from just about everybody in, in the legal community is this is not going to work. This is not the way to do it. It sounds great, but it's not being tough on crime. It's being tough on indigenous people. And it's basically taking powers away from the people that are sitting on the bench. So th- this is something that had to be changed. But it just seems as if the government is, is very slow to move on this. Absolutely. The government came in on a platform of repealing mandatory minimum penalties. Of uh, uh, Reconciliation is in the mandate letter of every cabinet minister. And the you know one of the prime recommendations, in fact, um, former Senator um, Murray Sinclair and you know the, the chief commissioner of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission spoke out that Bill C-5 was not going to achieve, achieve the objectives of lowering the number of Indigenous people in prison or actually repealing the mandatory minimum penalties that most impact the incarceration rates. And so, uh, sadly, there was an opportunity here. It was missed. The Senate, we tried to amend it to improve the bill to basically allow, uh, what we were trying to do is allow judges the discretion to not impose any mandatory minimum penalty that wasn't repealed. It was only a half measure, uh, really, the the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry and the TRC and every uh, law reform and sentencing commission going back decades um, have recommended this. And so it's unfortunate because it's, you know, the idea of longer, more punitive sentences sounds appealing in a political, you know, when it's political rhetoric. But when you actually look at what it achieves, people stay in jail for longer periods, often with less access to programs, get literally dumped back into the streets if, if they're released at all. It induces people to plead guilty even when they may not be guilty because they're charged with a mandatory minimum. And if they're offered a plea deal, they're more likely to take it, um, particularly for Indigenous women who mostly, when they're in prison for violence-related offenses, it's usually their responses to violence first perpetrated against them, not always in self-defense, but sometimes in self-defense, and then they plead guilty as well. So it's led to the jailing disproportionately of Indigenous people, especially Indigenous women who are now one in uh, one in two of the prison population serving two years or more. 
And um, when women are sent to jail, about 90% of their kids end up in the care of the state. So we're, we're actually piling on more and more um, punishment, if you will, for individuals who, uh, as the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry showed, the very same issues that give rise to Indigenous women being more likely to be disappeared, murdered, end up on the streets, are exactly the same issues that result in them being imprisoned, because they're often trying to navigate poverty and past abuse as they're trying to make their way and support their kids. And, um, and you know, that's not presumably when people say, let's be tough on crime, Presumably, they're not thinking putting more and more Indigenous women in prison and taking more of their kids and putting them in state care is going to make us safer. But that's the end result. And so we, I think it's so important that you and others are, are raising this in the public because, you know, otherwise people think, oh, yeah, no, it's just, you know, it's only the people who are really violent who are being locked up. Uh, it's also why, you know, we're taking, you know, encouraging senators to exercise their statutory entitlement and I would say duty to go into prisons and see the conditions and so I think it's no accident that senators are in many ways leading the way on what we know needs to happen because they've you know all senators from every um, group political group have gone into the prisons and they see the realities and recognize uh, you know and as the James Smith Cree Nation the indigenous elders after that horrific uh, tragedy uh, said, we don't want longer, more punitive sentences. We want resources in community. And to their credit, the government stepped up on that. And so let's hope that we'll see more changes coming. And when the government sees that this bill is not going to achieve uh, what the objectives they set for it, uh, hopefully they'll move further. The concern here, and, and I don't want to rehash what the Harper government did because you know that, that was then and this is now. But I mean, we've seen the the results of that and and the residue of that, and it's as you mentioned, it's long lasting. Uh, but why can't the government? And I just I know you you're doing what you can in the Senate, but the government itself has to be more proactive on this. In one bold move, they could simply say we're not going to do this anymore. But they they seem hesitant to do that. Is is, is it public opinion? What's what's holding them up here? Well, it, I, it is a very good question because when I speak to the public, people get it. Um, if you say, I mean, I was raised working class. I was raised, you know, you do the crime, you do the time. And that kind of rhetoric is simplistic and it appeals to people in one sense. But if you just, the, um, the government's own um, survey of Canadians showed that 90% of the people in the country think judges should be able to do their job and weigh all the evidence. Also, the majority felt that we shouldn't have just... Um, you know, as a result, mandatory minimum penalties. So if you just give people a little bit of information beyond the, you know, the the rhetoric, uh, they get it. And if you and so we need to get past slogans and people trying to make political points. I mean, I'm sorry, seeing uh, Pierre Polyev stand in front of the encampments in Vancouver and pontificate about drug policies that are, are fictional and you know he's is misleading Canadians. I think we have to keep calling it out and say, you know, if the, if all of this, what you're saying was true, then right now, based on the policies that were brought in, based on the austerity, you know, cutting health care, cutting social services, cutting educational resources, then we should have been super well off during the pandemic. And we know just the opposite is true. And we should have the safest communities. And, and if mandatory minimum penalties and longer, more punitive sentences, period, worked, then, you know, United States should be the safest place in the world. And I, you know, I just was there yesterday and 
uh, speaking, and it's certainly not the sentiment that people have there. And uh, and you know, when I see things like people, you know, being you, know, you walk into a store and they're saying, "Please don't bring guns in," and I'm thinking, you know, what kind of I don't want that kind of country for Canada. And so we need to stem this tide, turn it back. And I think people, you know, not that it's on folks, but the government thinks it's what uh, the people who elected them want. I think people who are listening, we know that's not the case though. And I'm glad you got the U.S. reference up because even back when these pieces of legislation were were being developed, uh, there were boatloads of reports from the southern United States and and just about every part, California, New York, go all the way down, that said this doesn't work. Uh, We've tried that. We tried to get tough on, you know, lock the door and throw away the key. And all it does is creates more criminals. Uh, and, yeah. and angry criminals when they come out, if they come out. And, and the, by the way, the, 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 the incidents of repeat offenders, of course, just skyrocketed once they do that, too. So we do mm-hmm. know better. But you've got politicians uh, then and now, I guess, that are appealing to people's emotions, but they're people's uninformed emotions. That's correct. That's, you're absolutely right. And I can't say it better than you just did, Bill. Thank you. But you know, and but they should be thinking that around the cabinet table too, shouldn't they? I mean, we I look at a statistic it, here, Senator, that says half of female inmates in Canadian prisons are Indigenous. There's a problem there. Yeah, well, I I agree. I think that um, we need courage. We need people to stand up and take it on. And and the reality is, the the benefit of me being here now in this kind of position, and and one of the benefits of se- for senators uh, is that we aren't trying to get elected. And but I think that means there's an added responsibility on us to speak up and and take that bold and courageous step when if the government doesn't feel capable of. Because part of our responsibility is to represent those who are either ignored intentionally or otherwise or who are not seen as sufficiently influential to um to carry the day in terms of uh, public opinion and so i think you're right it's absolutely that we need the people who have the courage to take this action and it's you know it's beyond ironic doesn't even seem the right word it's it it was shocking to me as we were not taking the bold step here in canada in the District of Columbia, they were repealing most of the mandatory minimum penalties that were brought in during the decade, you know, before we started doing it, when they were doing it, because they recognize it's created um, not only, you know, mass incarceration, but that's a drain on healthcare systems, that's a drain on social services, because as you mentioned, when people come out, if they don't have housing, they're suddenly uh, part of the homeless groups, they're part of the people without food, they're part of the people who uh, are trying to figure out how to get a job, to get ahead and and move on. And there are already many strikes be you know behind everybody else. And so and then if they have health issues, they're tending to show up in the emergency rooms. And so it's part of why, you know, many of us are working on things like how do we shore up our health, economic and social um support systems in this country because if we manage to decrease the incarceration rates then the tens of billions of dollars that go into that system right now at least part of it could be being reallocated to health care which we know especially in this province right now we sorely need well and as you say the evidence is there um 
you know, and just whatever report about this suggests this is the wrong way to go. Uh, and, and I don't buy this. I mean, you know, that, that, you know, people are going to be upset about this. Uh, I, I'd like to think that we're smarter about that. that we can learn from what our American friends are doing and say, okay, they tried that. It didn't work. Let's be smarter about it here. But we're following in the same thing. I mean, it's the same thing with the, you know, the federal government's idea about you know, getting rid of assault weapons. And lo and behold, there's that voice. I knew it was going to come from somebody, and it is the opposition. They're going to take your guns away. Uh, yeah. And people buy into this stuff all the time. This is, I mean, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that you just talked about years ago said get rid of mandatory sentences. You know, I, I hope yep. they've read that document at some point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I hope. And if people, um, you know, don't have time to read it, it's all, it's been read in, they've got recordings, uh, people reading every part of that. So if people haven't read it, I would encourage them to, you know, listen to it as they're driving into work. Well, no, they should be listening to you. But um, listening to, to <laughs> yeah, you read it to them. That's great. Uh, because, yeah, the, the recommendations actually will benefit everybody. If the, if the truth and reconciliation calls to action were implemented, it wouldn't just benefit Indigenous people. It would benefit all of us. And uh, that's, that's something we know from, you know, all kinds of affirmative action programs that they often benefit first and foremost the the people not just the people who um, they're focused on but they benefit all people who are you know living with economic insecurity in poverty people who are um, struggling to in terms of trying to get uh, trades training education that sort of thing and and you know I'd like to see more people be able to come from backgrounds like mine um, and you know get the education, get the supports, get the opportunities that too many people don't get, including in my own family. Exactly. Uh, Senator, our time is short here. I, I, I applaud the Senate for moving ahead on Bill C-5. That's, it's a good first step. It's not what we need. And I know that uh, Justice Minister Lametti has already commented on this after it received royal assent. Uh, but he's got to understand, too, that we need bolder action on this. And, and uh, I thank you for leading the way on this. And I thank you for spending some time with us this morning. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Bill, and thank you for being such an incredible voice for so you know so many people and making sure um, so many people hear these issues. It's really thank important, you, and, uh, and keep, I appreciate it. Keep doing what you're doing, Senator. Thanks again. We'll talk again soon. I hope. Right back at you. Thank you. Okay, Senator uh, Kim Pate, who's uh, been a, a strong uh, proponent for doing this kind of work, and and this is the thing that I find so frustrating about this: the data is there, and they know it. The politicians know it. Some are just playing with information or ignoring information for their own political purposes, and, and that's unfortunate, but it's changing people's minds in the wrong, wrong way with misinformation, uh, which is why you need people like Senator Pate and others to speak up, as we try to do on this program and others, to, to try to inform people so that we can pressure politicians to do what needs to be done. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.